0: Welcome to the New Books Network. New York University Press and Monica Huerta's newest release titled The Unintended, Photography, Property, and the Aesthetics of Racial Capitalism is part of New York University Press's America and the Long 19th Century series of works. With us on this podcast episode is Huerta herself, who will give us an inside view into what the unintended is supposed to represent. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Nathan Moore. Monica, the New Books Network wants to know what brought you to your research on the unintended and how did the book take shape? Thanks for that
2: question, Nathan, and thank you for having me. So there were two, what I thought were two different trajectories at first. So there was one trajectory that was about the right to privacy. um, And I'll say a little bit more about that. And then there was another one that was about uh, photography and one photograph in particular that just bothered me for a long time and I didn't understand why. So with the right to privacy, um i thought my book was going to be about or my dissertation then was going to be about documentary photography in the 1930s and 1960s and the more i read in documentary photography criticism i couldn't get away from the presumption that a photograph was a violation of someone's privacy and that there were you know, either a set of ethics or a kind of aesthetics that photographers could take on to counterbalance that inherent violation of privacy. Um, And I didn't understand. There was something about that um, assumption about the relation between photography as a violation of privacy that I didn't understand um, and that I thought was either cultural or historically specific. Um, And so that sort of started me down the path of, Researching the right to privacy, um, a lot of which ends up in chapter three at the book. And then the straight up photography um, trajectory was a photograph of a little, if you hear a bell, that's my cat, um, of a little girl named Rosa who's posed with three other people, one older gentleman and two um, other kids. And um, the way that she's not posing in a way to make the photograph work. In addition to the fact that there were many other photographs of her taken where she's posing, you know, exactly the way that she was supposed to be, um, to make the photograph work, um, for Northern, um, anti-slavery activists who would have commissioned the images, who commissioned the images. Um, it just bugged me because it was so early Um, in photography's history in the 1860s to have what we would call a kind of snapshot photograph, um, especially one that was reproduced so much, so much so that there are copies of the image in a bunch of different archives around the country. So those were the two trajectories that sort of ended up becoming the book. But when I was researching, I had no idea that that was how that was going to work or what it meant to have these two different trajectories, what I thought were different trajectories. Um, So that was the beginning of the project.
0: What is your academic discipline and are you a member of a university faculty now?
2: I am a faculty member at Princeton. I have a joint appointment in English and American studies. Um, My PhD is in English from UC Berkeley, And I have a master's in history from Princeton, actually.
0: Awesome. So what is the thesis of the unintended?
2: Um, So there are, I think, three different interlocking parts of it. The first part of it is thinking about whiteness as a structure of power. So that's not necessarily um, novel to my book but it is how my book fits into other um other historical studies of whiteness in particular and power more generally um second i think i really offer a novel reading practice for the law in an aesthetic register so when other scholars have thought about um even legal thinking or legal writing and aesthetics, it tends to be that people think about um, how the law makes sense to itself or the kinds of writing practices um, that make the law uh, look like, feel like law. Um, and that's not how I'm thinking about thinking of law in an aesthetic register. Instead, um, I'm proposing a kind of visual archaeology of legal thinking. So I try to take very seriously in all of my case studies, the images that um, different justices and lawyers and subjects are thinking with and taking those photographs really seriously opens up, I think, um, the legal thinking um, in these cases. So that's the second part. And then the third part is that in thinking about Um, law in an aesthetic register, and thinking about law in an aesthetic register toward trying to understand whiteness as a structure of power, I'm trying to make a contribution, or I am making a contribution, um, towards studies of racial capitalism that are trying to think about how those conditions um, on the ground are being reproduced, uh, that are at the very heart of liberalism, so privacy and property rights um, in my book.
0: And why the long 19th century? When would you say that your book takes place?
2: So the series is called The Long 19th Century, but my book is actually um, in some ways like a really short um, span technically in the cases from the early 1880s to the first few years of the 20th century. The series is called The Long 19th Century because there are so many um, dynamics that are cultural, um, whether they're legal, whether they're migration patterns, whether there are studies of racial capitalism or visual culture um, uh, in the 19th century that in order to understand them, you can't. You can't bracket them off, you know, inside of the 19th century. So I think that's why the series is called The Long 19th Century. But my book is um, pretty compactly <laughs> at the very end of the 19th and the turn of the 20th century.
0: Was archival research a staple for you? Where did you find so many photos?
2: Um, so... It was especially in sort of at the bookends of the work. At the beginning, because I wasn't sure about, not only I wasn't sure about the argument, I was discovering it, but I also didn't know exactly what kind of photographs it made sense to talk about. So there would be, you know, I knew that there were going to be the images that were at stake in the book. Um, For the second chapter, and the third, the fourth chapter, those images um, are pretty famous because those cases are are um, become precedents, and so are sort of canonical in a kind of law and humanities or um, uh, law and literature canon, let's say, of cases. Um, for the third chapter, I, I really wanted to find that image um, that is at issue in the case. It's a it's a, a, a photograph that was taken from a boxy in a theater, um, of a light opera singer named Marion Manola. Um, but I was not able to find it though. I was able to find other images of her. So I knew that those images were going to be in the book for sure, but I didn't know if it made sense to talk about other, either other kinds of photography or other, um, photographs of people that I was talking about or photographs that had been made by the photographers that, um, that I talk about. So I did a lot of um, work that didn't end up in the book um, in New Mexico at the New York public library at the Schomburg in California um, at the Bancroft Cal where I went to school um, and that a lot of like, I think almost all of that work, um, did not end up in the book because I ended up making the, the photographic archive of the book much more compact than thinking about, um, even, you know, studio photography or vernacular photography in any kind of, um, more generalizable way, um, so that was the sort of the first part of the of the process where archival research was really important, but it doesn't necessarily end up in the book. And then at the very end, when I had zeroed in, you know, on my argument on how it was working, um, I really wanted to flesh out some of the stories of these cases that even though the cases themselves are well known. So for example, in the fifth chapter, I'm talking about, uh, very famous case called Pavisage v. New England Mutual Life Insurance Company from 1905. And again, this is a precedent setting case because next to the cha- the case that I talk about in the fourth chapter, um, uh, Robeson v. Rochester Folding Box Company from 1904, 02, sorry, um, Uh, those two sort of are the the precedents that courts take into the 20th century, one opposing the existence of a right to privacy, that's Roberson, and one arguing for the existence of a right to privacy, um, and that's Pavsich. So those cases, again, are really well known, um, but I really wanted to get into the nitty gritty of the people in the cases. So especially for Pavsic, Um, who was a a mural artist um, from Trieste um, in what is now Italy, but then was not yet. Um, I really wanted to track him down uh, to figure out how he ends up being um, someone who the New England Mutual Life Insurance Company um, wanted in their advertisement, which is what he's... uh, uh, the image that he is bringing um, them to court for. Um, so then research was really uh, important to trying to figure figure out who he was and what his trajectory was as a mural artist. I didn't know when I started that he was a mural artist, but his trajectory as a mural artist, how he gets to um, Atlanta, which is where the case is tried, from Trieste, and the his career as a mural artist that brings him... Um, to Atlanta uh, at the turn of the 20th century, so that was a that was a bulk of the work at the near the end of the research process. Um, but that I think you know, I think that sort of trajectory where you have a lot of work at the beginning that doesn't make it into the book that becomes, and then at the end where you've sort of zeroed in on um, what you need, um, and having another sort of big push um archival or historical then I think that might be pretty typical I would imagine of writing books because at the beginning you don't know um what exactly the book is becoming and at the end you have a real a real sort of um what is it like isolated and focused sense of what you need in order to flesh out what you um what you're arguing
0: I think in your preface, you write about slaves from, and I stop here because the city that you mentioned is New Orleans. That may or may not be the backdrop or the only setting for this idea. So where is slavery most relevant for you? Is it in New Orleans or is it someplace else?
2: So the preface, if I am remembering my whole book correctly, the preface is really the only place that New Orleans makes an appearance. But I think a lot of the book or a lot of the argument um, can only make sense in the aftermath of slavery, um, not least of which because in that case, passage v. New England, the judge in the case, Justice Cobb, um, he himself is a very much a son of the Confederacy. So his uncle wrote the um, or helped write the uh, the constitution of the Confederacy. Um, he grew up on a plantation of over a hundred slaves. He would have been raised probably most likely by an enslaved person. The legal scholar Anita Allen has done this um, this research into, you know the the very deep, roots of the confederacy that justice cobb um had um, and he grew up in the plantation was in athens georgia um and athens georgia right like still has a, a strong presence of um, the cobb family now um, and when he is deciding that case or in that Um, opinion of Pavsic, New England from 1905, where he is arguing for the existence of a right to privacy um, of this mural artist, Paolo Pavsic. Um, The way that he figures that existence of a right to privacy is by suggesting that having a photograph of you, of one, um, circulate will be taken and then circulate without the subject's control or consent um, is as though um, enslaving a person, and that's his language, um, not mine. Um, so this figure of enslavement that would, that would happen in the aftermath of slavery in the law that wasn't particular even to Cobb, my um, Stephen Best's First book, *Fugitive Properties* is entirely about um, the afterlife of slavery and the figure of the enslaved in the law that happens um, after emancipation and in intellectual property. I think his third chapter is about that. Um, it's deeply connected um, to that story, and *Passage* is is part of that. Um, so, even if the institution itself um, and the experiences of the enslaved are not. Uh, part of the first four chapters, they do come back again in, um, in the fifth chapter. Um, they do come back again in the fifth chapter with passage, but also because that chapter is um, about a kind of reading practice for the portraits of Frederick Douglass um, that I think Douglass offers us um, most explicitly in his second autobiography, My Bondage and, um, and My Freedom.
0: What does racial capitalism mean?
2: So this is, um, yeah, this is a question that lots of people are invested in and have been invested in for a couple generations now of scholars. The best articulation um, that I understand is Ruth Wilson Gilmore's, where she offers that capitalism needs hierarchy and difference and racism enshrines it. So as i read it um the scholars who work on studies of or who write studies of racial capitalism um are not arguing that that this is a particular kind of capitalism or that there is some moment before capitalism becomes racial capitalism um instead the, the work is really trying to understand how that dynamic that Gilmore, you know, so beautifully and cleanly articulates plays out not only in the United States, but in other places as well. So that really wonderful collection of Primarily, though, not only historical work um, that Dustin Jenkins and uh, Justin Leroy put out, Histories of Racial Capitalism, is a sort of perfect encapsulation of that both of that sentiment um, about racial capitalism, but also of the breadth of work that is happening um, to understand the contours, Um, but also of the breadth of work that's happening to understand the contours. So, that is part of the answer. Another part of the answer is that at least in the last, I'd say, 10 to 15 years, um, there's been a real effort of, of scholars in different parts of the academy um, to take categories of um, Marxist approaches to political economy, whether that's primitive accumulation or even worker um. And try to show how that category um, has a, a not only a dispossessive life that's articulated uh, by Marxist approaches, but one that is um, fleshed out by thinking very broadly about the phenomenon of um, race and its mechanisms of um, what Lisa Lowe calls biopolitical sorting. So that's a kind of um, uh, way of encapsulating all of that work that's happening. I think um, two things uh, about answering the question: What is racial capitalism? One, that it's not unitary really matters. I think um, so. You know when when we approach terms, whether it's racial capitalism or some other, we want Uh, definition right like we want um a category to mean that it is an object and that the object is stable um however uh with with dynamics processes institutions histories structures um subject subject making biopolitical sortings environments all of which are caught up in um, various moments and iterations of racial capitalism. There isn't a singular object, I don't believe. um, And there isn't a a sort of succinct definition besides the one that I offered from Gilmore. Um, But what there is, is an intellectual genealogy um, and a set of concerns. Um, and so I really think of my book as trying to learn from, you know, the, that intellectual genealogy, um, and to offer, you know, the, the kinds of visual thinking that I think I'm okay at, um, to that conversation.
0: Do you believe in the legal unconscious and optical unconscious? What does it mean in the context of legal thinking and photography? Why is legal thinking so valuable to photographic depiction?
2: So those two terms, so legal unconscious and optical unconscious, um, are ones that I pair in the introduction, legal unconscious coming from Oliver Wendell Holmes and optical unconscious coming from Walter Benjamin. Um, so, uh the question of me believing in in them a little bit aside, the way that they matter to the book is in part because Holmes is trying to think about, Holmes is really trying to access, I think part of what my book too is trying to access with a, with a, a more um, pointed approach that is invested in thinking about power. Um, Holmes, I think when he's talking about the legal unconscious, he's talking about, um, uh, for lack of a better word, the kind of the empirical, uh, reality of, of in which a case, um, is playing out. So the legal unconscious meaning what is, um, what is the world in which, uh, a case is playing out? What is the world in which a jurist, a judge might be considering, um, the the facts of a case the fault in a case the fault in it yeah finding a fault in a case um and so that's what he means by legal unconscious what is the law contending with that maybe the language of the law doesn't admit so that's at that's the level of unconscious i think that he means when walter benjamin is talking about the optical optical unconscious um of photography he's talking about um aspects of a photograph that might not have been, let's say, the um, at the attention or at the forefront of the attention of a photographer, even of a subject or of a contemporary onlooker to that photograph, but that in an aftermath, um, where Benjamin or we are looking at a photograph that we see some some that same aspect that was unintended at the time. Um, but has become for us in the future of that photograph, uh, what he calls where the future is nesting. So the optical unconscious um, of a photograph having registered some where something that we can tell is where the future was nesting. Um, And that's part of what he means by optical unconscious. Um, What I mean by putting them together is trying to think about at both registers. So both, um, what, what is activating the thinking in a case that might not be evident by even the language at work in a case. So again, one step, um, in the direction of Holmes, but also what is operative in a photograph, a certain photograph, but also, in how photography is is being talked about and how photography is taking shape um, in that late 19th century, early 20th century moment, that actually helps us get into (laughs) or get like uh, come at an oblique angle um, to the legal thinking that is happening. So it's it's expanding, but also refining in a sense, um, what, Holmes means by legal unconscious with questions from Benjamin about what registers in a photograph. So Benjamin really expands I think our sense of um, the historicity of a photograph by making that historicity uh, dynamic. Um, And I then take in that dynamic approach to the historicity of a photograph or what's historical about the photograph to think more broadly about what a photograph expresses, um, as what's being recalibrated and then adjudicated in recalibrated at the cultural level, adjudicated in the court cases. Um, and then for the second photograph, for the second photograph, for the second question about why legal thinking is valuable to photographic depiction, I think in my book, it is It's not that 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 isn't happening, but in my book, I really take the opposite approach. So um, thinking about the photographic depiction is what helps me understand the legal thinking. Um, It's not depiction, though. It's expression in my book um, helps me understand the legal thinking in the cases.
0: If you had to use one photo to represent the aesthetics of property, what would you choose and why?
2: So I think I actually would choose none of the images that are in the book, although those are um important, but I think I would choose the cover image of my book. So this is a contemporary artist, um, David Maisel, and this image is from his series uh called History's Shadow. So the practice for this series is that he takes x-rays of art objects from um from before the invention of photography. So before 1839. Um, so he x-rays art objects and then re-photographs that art object. And those are the images that are in history's shadow. Um, one of which is the cover of my book. And the reason why I think that this articulates something like the aesthetics of property is because the, what I mean by thinking about properties, aesthetics, is trying to trace this, the sense-making around photography in that moment to help me understand or to help me unpack the legal. And this Maisel image, one, appears at first glance to be a person, um, but isn't. It is a statue. Um, and then two, because it's an image that asks you to stay with it. And even if even when you learn or when you discern that this either can't or, um, can't be, or isn't the image of a person, it nonetheless, um, evokes that. So ideas around expression and photography in the late 19th century purport to be about people. Um, and just as often as not, and in my book more often than not, um, They're not about people necessarily, but they are about power um, and about the elaboration of a specific kind of whiteness as part of that, what Cedric Robinson called the new racial regime of the late 19th and early 20th century. So this image, I think, even if it's not something that I talk about in the book, I think articulates how much aesthetics is a way into thinking about property in part because property as an idea is a relation and property as a, an idea that is a relation requires a kind of patience to unpack almost especially because um, it becomes naturalized. So like this image appearing to be a person property relations and property itself as a, as a concept appears in our world as though it were um a natural state of things um but requires time thought attention much unpacking and um patience to see where the where the differences are or where the fault lines are between the personhood or the expression that is purported to be describing be described be in the process of being described um and the um Uh, the aesthetic system that makes that intelligible. Um, So that's the one that I would talk about.
0: In modern times, where would we find the best examples of the images from your book? Is it in surveillance technology? Also, what about classified photos or documentation?
2: Yeah. So I don't, um, I don't know exactly how to think about this question um, I mean surveillance is a good example of an afterlife of some of the arguments in the book because chapter three is about privacy but chapter two is about copyright and chapter three is about publicity rights so I think part of the the sort of um, early life of our now contemporary moment that my book is talking about um, is just as much about, um the circulation of images in a digital world as it is about anything else, which cross-cuts surveillance but isn't only about surveillance. Um yeah, so that's not that's not the best answer. Um but I also wasn't I, I as I was writing the book, I could feel that there were resonances with the contemporary moment. But I was I was really set on making on writing a book that was a historical um, book. So those resonances didn't take center stage yet in the thinking.
0: Is there a photography creation that might be available inside a museum that works well with your book?
2: So the last chapter of the book is thinking not exactly about curation but it's thinking about teaching um specifically teaching photography and the the idea of that chapter is that you know if there is if we can think about Whiteness has an aesthetics of power. That fifth chapter is trying to think about what approaches to photography, to teaching photography might not reproduce that same aesthetics. And you know, I'm thinking with um many, many black feminists who ask uh related questions from um philosopher Denise da De Silva, um film film and art scholar, um, Rizvana Bradley. Um, who else am I thinking with there? Oh, um, Tina Camp, who's a, um, a historian and photography critic. Um, other folks <laughs> I can't think of now, but that, that sort of, um, constellation of folks helped me suggest that at least one of the ways into Teaching photography differently might be not presuming that um, the end goal is to articulate uh, a presupposed sense of either the human or person. So I really end, um, or I guess I ended the book asking myself whether um, all of this reading and thinking about photography. has has uncovered for me that we we might not know how to look at light. Not not just that we might not understand light from a sort of um, scientific perspective. Um, I know less about that uh, in a contemporary moment, but that we might not actually know how to look at light because so much of that first chapter really shows that... um, ideas of light become embedded in the presumption of the expressive that we take for granted, but that is, the first chapter is arguing part of how um, whiteness makes its surveilling capacities part of the hegemonic, so that people think, we think, right, in a sort of colloquial vernacular way of, of existing. We think that we um, know how someone is feeling, by looking at them because that's their, that their expression has taken that on. And that's a, you know, a sort of uh, everyday example, um, of how that aesthetics work. Or we think when we look at a photograph that we might, that what, that the most important thing to figure out is the intention, either of the photographer or of a subject, if there's a, um, a person in the image. And so, um, thinking, differently about light might be um, the next step. In terms of a curation practice, um, the last, I mean, I I just wrote a review of a a show on contemporary uh, Latinx photographers that was curated by Pilar Tompkins-Rivas, who's the chief curator for the new Lucas Museum of Narrative Art that's opening in two years in LA. And that, that, show was um beautiful because I say this in the review but like because that show I think does sidestep this aesthetics um that is not only about presuming the the sort of um tight connection between expression and intention or even the priority of intention but because it it allows the category of um, Latinx as an identity um, to be itself a kind of um, ongoing uh, movement. So the photographers in the show are not categorized by um, genre or uh, by um, ethnicity or um, uh, history, so it's not you know organized chronologically. Um, the the curation of the show, at least where I saw it at um, one of the satellite spaces of the, of the Princeton Art Museum, um, uh, they were arranged by these really subtle, actually, um, impulses from inside the photographic practice of each of the photographers, which, again, isn't necessarily about intention, and it's not about genre, and it's not about period, but um, it's not even about theme necessarily, um, but it is something about t- potentially you might call it like the the photographic craft that's at work um, in these photographers' works that ends up resonating one against the other. So um, Juan Valades' uh, portraits um, next to uh, Gabriela Ruiz and Bibs Moreno's photographic collaborations. Um, invite you to think about the photographic, um, as collaboration. There's a book coming out this fall on photographic collaboration, um, edited by Lee Rayford and, uh, Ariel Azule and Laura Wexler. Um, so I think that kind of curation, uh, where the, the arrangement of the photographs or of the work, um, it's, trying to do something besides categorize is maybe a succinct way of putting that, um, can potentially sidestep those, those aesthetics of
1: whiteness. This episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com. It's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com.
0: And was there a market for black photographers that you know of? What other forms of agency do people of color have rather than just objects or commodified images?
2: So on that second question, um, besides the sort of the bookends of the book, the sort of bookend uh, sections of the book, the preface, um, the fifth chapter, and the coda, um, I, I, I really wanted um, in some way to take the burden of proof off of the, um, people of color for talking about power. Um, so in my book, again, those bookends are where, um, people of color and especially black people appear. Um, but they are not often in, um, the pages of the book as subjects of, um, power. And that was a pretty conscious choice that I was making, um, the black photographers, yes. So there's a really um, two books that I'm thinking about. Um, one is Matthew Fox Amato's book about how enslaved people um, managed to send each other photographs, um, even while enslaved. Is a he does a lot of great archival work tracking down um, different iterations of this practice across the lines of, of freedom and enslaved. And then the other book is Aston Gonzalez's book. Oh man, whose title I'm forgetting right now, but it is entirely about black image makers in um, the 19th century, among them, Augustus Washington. So there absolutely were um, black photographers who were working, who either had, a studio in a particular city or who were, you know, like a lot of daguerreotypists typists and photographers in that mid 19th century moment um, would travel from town to town, let's say, um, and take their, take their sort of mobile studio with them. Can
0: performance studies animate your work outside of photography to be viewed by a more engaged audience? what other forms of expression could you use or did you use in this book outside of photography?
2: So the first chapter is um, entirely about performance. And the reason why is exactly because I think as this this question is intuiting, the idea of expression um, obviously lives outside of the context of photography. And importantly to my book, um, a specific performance culture and practice of American Delsartism is what gives me the way or a serious engagement with that performance practice is what gives me a way then of thinking about um, photography in the rest of the book. So um, American Delsartism um, was a performance practice in the late 19th century um, that would have started with Francois Del in Paris in the 1870s. Um, and he, he himself was a singer, um, but had to retire because he um, had a form of laryngitis that made singing thereafter um, not possible. Uh, so he turned to acting and really uh, dedicated himself to coming up with what we would call maybe a... a grammar of postures that would connote a specific emotion. So that form of acting where certain hand gestures or certain postures um, are ways of comporting, arranging your body to mean a certain emotion, we think of as something that has to do with um, the melodramatic stage um, or more sort of classical forms of Performing, But Delsart in performance studies is thought of as someone that's a kind of hinge figure into the more modern or into theatrical realism um, or naturalism where um, bodies are used in performing, let's just say acting now, um, in acting in a more fluid, um, non sort of uh, Prescribed way of thinking about your body as one that takes on one particular pose or another. If you're happy, sad, surprised, etc., right? There's not it, it, when we go to the theater. Now we don't expect that an actor will take on a certain pose if they're sad and another pose if they're happy. Um, even if the ways that they're moving their body correspond in some ways to those emotional states. So, Delsartism helps me dig in, or the the teaching manuals around Delsartism, especially in that in that late 19th century moment, really helped me dig in very, very, very deep um, to how that system trained its um, actors. But the other thing that Delsartism does that's super important to the book is that not only actors were being taught by these practitioners, it was also society ladies or ladies at College. So there's this great scene in the first chapter at um, Wellesley, where one of the teachers, uh, Genevieve Stebbins, who's also an actress, um, performs at Wellesley uh, in a in a sort of Del Sartes menagerie, uh, uh, taking on different costumes of different figures from um, antiquity, and the various ways that she, in particular, and her books. Anna Morgan um, in another section of the chapter describe how to be in a body um, is one that other performance studies scholars, other theater historians have talked about as part of women learning how to be society ladies and in particular white society ladies. Um, All of that helps me articulate the specific sense of what expression meant um, and how it how it worked and what it presumed to have um, control over, especially control over um, the aspects of yourself that you're not in fact controlling as somehow both revelatory of some, some truth of you, um, but also one that you might, if trained properly in Delsartism, one that you might be able to sort of inculcate or habituate into uh, trusting yourself when you're not, uh, in conscious control to nonetheless be um, graceful in your appearance. So performance studies in that first chapter is uh, really crucial. And as I, as as I wrote the book, I realized that, you know, that second chapter has a, an element of um, performance history in it. That third chapter has an element of, element of performance history in it. Um, there's a significant portion of chapter five where I'm talking about Douglas's Performances as a speaker. Um, So it ended up being, maybe it's not a surprise, but it ended up being, performance ended up being important to the book in a way that I wouldn't have imagined when I started out.
0: What about opera?
2: So, opera itself is not important to the book, but because light opera, so comedic opera, was such a popular form in that moment it happens that it, that different plays make, um, appearances. So in that third chapter, um, the play that makes an appearance is called castles in the air. And the, the historical work that I did around that play in particular show that, um, so, Let me back up a little bit. So Marion Manola had her, she was a a light opera singer, um, and she had her photograph taken against her will by the manager of the theater who wanted to snap a picture of her um, while she was performing. And she brings him to court, she brings him and the photographer to court, uh, because she said that she had told the manager that she did not want her photograph taken. And the reason that she gives for the fact that she didn't want her photograph taken is because her costume in the character of Bulbul, which is what she was playing, uh, showed her stockings. Um, The problem with with that assertion is that she appears uh, with her full legs exposed in stockings in um, these cabinet cards, That were sold uh, with—I can't remember the name of the cigar company—but with uh, that came with these uh, cigars that you would buy as a kind of um, novelty, um, and/or you could buy her her cabinet cards, um, her carte de visite at a photographer's studio because she was a well-known actress, and she appeared in costumes where her stockings were exposed. So. All of this to say that that performance of that play, Castles in the Air, where she's appearing as Bull Bull, is something that other scholars have talked about. But in doing the historical work on Castles in the Air, um, what I found that I did not find anybody yet who had written about it is that the play is set in Martinique. Um, and I did some work around the, the, uh, the writer of the lyric of the play. But Martinique becomes important because then it opens up the question of who these characters were supposed to be beyond the fact that Manola was playing a, um, a masculine presenting character who falls in love with the daughter of um, uh, the wealthy Landowner on Martinique who has commissioned Bulbul, the character that Manola is playing, um, to try to make his wife be quiet because that's his <laughs> that's his plight in the play. To um, so opera itself, or opera as a, a kind of performance. Isn't that central to the book, but that particular play in that third chapter is really important because thinking about the fact that Castles in the Air was set in Martinique um, just added an entirely other layer to what there was to think about in the case um, uh, of Manola against the theater manager and the photographer.
0: Where is the sacred in your book? Do you write about religion in the unintended
2: So I don't write directly about religion, but um, Delsart converted to a kind of mystical Catholicism later in life. And the philosopher, the Catholic mystic philosopher, um, Swedenborg is really important to how he's thinking about the idea of expression, the idea of the movement of different, the incremental movements of different body parts, and especially his idea of Transluminosity. So, transluminosity as this um, this idea that the the movement of the soul was visible in the world. So, looking at someone, you might see the movement of their soul by way of this quality of transluminosity. Um, so, the light of the soul as something that you could see, but not only something that you could see. Really important to Dilsart was his idea that you could train it you could practice with your um you could practice moving your soul you could practice how your soul's transluminosity was made available to others um so that ends up being important that idea and then the practices that follow from that idea ends up being really important to that first chapter it's it also just fascinated me because the because photography starts with the study of light, right? So the the technologies, the ideas, the impulses around fixing an image to a plate paper um, arise from from natural scientists, philosophers, practitioners, uh, curious amateurs um, experimenting with the nature of light. So that connection between Delsart's Sort of Catholic mystic sense of transluminosity as something um, that is that is real, that is tangible, that is evident in the world, not not as a metaphor, not as an analogy of uh, how the soul might be visible, that, but actually that the soul is transluminous and that the soul might be made available, might be made more available, might flow ever more um, smoothly through your body and as it flows through your body more smoothly might be made more evident to others, right? Like your, um, very bright, shining soul. Um, sorry, your bright, shining soul. Um, but so that connection between his idea of transluminosity and then the, the connection between photography and light, um, is, I think that's in the middle of the first chapter that that starts to really take hold. Um, so in that, like, that's, that's the, kind of avenue into thinking about at least mysticism, if not the sacred um, that happens in the book.
0: And where can we find a sense of freedom or a light at the end of the tunnel in your history of photography? Are there more positive outlooks on racial capitalism?
2: Part of how I understand my job <laughs> um is to think about, think holistically about um the historical, the aesthetic, the critical, and then that fifth chapter, right, like makes offerings towards how to teach differently. Um I think the I think the impulse toward positive outlooks has to do a lot of the times with um uh, some disconnect or some presumption of a disconnect between, um, politics, life history and the individual. Right. So like if I offered positive outlook, that means that no one has to do anything and everything is cool or like, will be cool. Um, and I don't think that that is real. So the teaching differently part is one part of my job. um, And two, part of what I think a book like mine wants to offer, because that's what scholars do, right? So we write and we teach, and that is the contribution that we make toward um, other modes of being with one another. So that's why it felt important to me to um, end with the chapter that thinks about teaching,
0: Is there a memory of the civil war in your research? I think you write about Morse and Oscar Wilde. Where do you stand on memory as a way of reconnecting with the past through images or artifacts?
2: So Oscar Wilde plays a very big role in the second chapter about copyright because the case that I'm writing about was about a picture that a portrait of him that a then very famous celebrity photographer Napoleon Cerrone took of wild that was then used by, um, a hat store, uh, in, uh, in advertisements for the store. Uh, so Napoleon Cerrone takes the lithographic company that made those advertisements to court saying that he had proper copyright over the image. He had established proper copyright, his proper copyright over the image and that the, um, the Burrow-Giles lithographic company had used his image without his consent. So his being Napoleon, not Oscar Wilde. Um, the reason that Oscar Wilde is important to think with in that case, um, is because as, um, what's her name? Not Michelle Williams. That is a member of Destiny's Child. Um... I think it's Michelle Williamson because Michelle Williamson wrote a book about um, Oscar Wilde, where she did a ton of archival research to show the extent to which Oscar Wilde is um, heavily caricatured in print culture, in performances on broadsides um, in that late 19th century moment. And while he is in the United States to have taken that portrait or to have sat for that portrait with Napoleon Cerrone. So that fact of Wilde in particular um, being represented in minstrel shows um, and as himself uh, uh, in anti-Black visual idioms um, becomes my way of reading how it's possible for the court to think about this image as Napoleon Cerrone's, because of the kind of legal acrobatics that the judge has to do to justify the existence of copyright for a photographer that is of someone who is not the photographer, right? So, if it had been a photograph of Napoleon Cerrone that had been circulated in this um, in this advertisement for a hat store. Uh, it would have been much easier for the for Justice Miller um to make an argument that Napoleon owned that image, but because it's wild, he has to he has to engage in all sorts of um, justifications for what makes this photograph Cerrone's. um and the term that he ends up settling on is arrangement that there would be some arrangement evident in a photograph that makes it the creative expression of the photographer over and against the natural expression or the presumed expression of the person in the photograph. Um, And it's really weird the way that the judge ends up justifying that wild in that image uh, is taking on an expression that belongs to Cerrone, who is nowhere in the image scene. Um, So the, the wildness of that case uh, is is how that chapter ends up working. The Civil War, and the I mean, in the way that I talked about before, the kind of afterlife of slavery and the law, um, especially with Stephen's book uh, as a kind of jumping off point for my own, and then that preface uh, where I talk about that image of the Rosa and the other children and Wilson Chin. Um, which was taken during the Civil War in 1864. Those would be the only, well, I guess Frederick Douglass as well, but but it's not really about, yeah, the Civil War itself doesn't appear as such very much in the book.
0: What's an example of copyright wars from the period you study in The Unintended?
2: So... That second chapter is not exactly about the copyright wars, but it is about copyright. So the the actors in something that you might call copyright wars are publishers, authors, various kinds of creators like photographers or map makers or songwriters um, or musicians, um, the publishers, and then those who would use any of those beyond the publisher so this hat store for example right in chapter two um that uses the portrait of oscar wilde for an advertisement of itself and also the printing um the various lithographic companies especially that would print any of these advertisements who end up being the people who are taken to court because they're the ones who are doing the the reproducing of these images um that Where's another copyright case? Well, the, um, so the flip side, so the flip side of the copyright wars or that copyright case is in that fourth chapter, which ends up being, um, I mentioned it earlier, Roberson v. Rochester. It ends up being the, the case that folks look back to as a kind of origin for publicity rights. But in that case, Abigail Robson um, loses Um, and the judge Justice Parker denies her denies her a right to privacy but more generally denies the existence of a right to privacy Um, so the I think the the publication story of the book and the publication history that's living in the book um, is again like wrestling with a kind of uh preempts our contemporary moment where there is such a easy circulation of, um, images, materials, what we call now content, right. Um, outside of the control of an immediate, um,
0: creator. What legal documents, journalist records, newspapers, or other popular literary works in the public domain are accessible and that you recommend readers to read?
2: So many of the, in many if not all of the images that I use are um, in the public domain in terms of legal documents. I mean, the the main legal treatise that I write about in chapter three, The Right to Privacy by Sammy Warren and Lewis Brandeis is one of the most um, cited, read, thought about pieces of legal writing and is worth a read if only because it's a real so one they're really young when they write it they just graduated from law school two years before first and second in their class from Harvard Law um, they're young lawyers young hungry lawyers in Boston also the the genre the form of the law review article is really young in that moment so the article itself um, has a kind of uh, like, Emerging, emergent quality to it that that is, I think, really interesting to read because the form is is unsure. Too, I think it's interesting to think about the kinds of things that 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 bothered them. Um, there's a myth, you know, around Samuel Warren that the reason that he becomes interested in the right to privacy or passionate about the right to privacy is because some photographer, some um, from a newspaper. Uh, I think hid in the bushes there's some story about a photographer at his daughter's wedding. Um, and that you know turns out to be apocryphal but uh, they're upset about um, eavesdropping. they're upset about uh, reputations. they're upset about um, being able to take photographs from elevated train tracks into, Apartment buildings. Um, they're upset about newspapers being interested in gossip. They're upset about gossip itself. Um, so that uh, the, the, their youth, the newness of that form of the Law Review article, um, and the kinds of investments that they have in um, their right to privacy being a way to uphold a kind of a very specific version of, uh, civic decorum. Um, and I really mean the word decorum, um, I think is, is interesting to read. There's, there are now tons of, um, newspapers that are digitized and easily searchable. So for any, for, especially for tracing down, let's say, Paolo Pavsic, Um, I found him because so many newspapers are digitized. So I was able to trace how he moves from, um, from in the between Chicago and Missouri, then down into Atlanta and Tampa, um, all the while building his business as a mural artist entirely by way of digitized newspapers. Um, and with, with, literature, again, there are any number of, um, almost too, too many um, books in the public domain to choose from. Um, but the one, I have an article coming out, hopefully next year, that is about, um, there are large sections about the House of Mirth, which I love, um, and is tangentially related to some of the questions in the book. And, um, oh man, what's it called? Oh, Charles Chestnut's the Colonel's Dream, which is, you know, he wouldn't have used the term, but it is this, this amazing novel um, that narrativizes how the specific form of racial capitalism in, um, especially in the South through the the figure of, I forgot his first name, but of Mr. Fetters um, as a convict laborer. Uh, leaser, I think is the right word, operator. Um, those two novels are fantastic. If, you are, if anybody's looking for a late 19th century um, work, those are just as good as any you could find.
0: Why are rights broadly defined so integral to your book? And what rights do people have now, thanks in part to what you write about in The Unintended?
2: I mean, there's a way of reading my book, I think, that that is entirely about um, the right to privacy and the specific form of a right to privacy as something that covers an individual. Um, and in that late nineteenth-century moment, which becomes different in the middle of the twentieth century, but in the late nineteenth-century moment is about, for Warren and Brandeis, um, one's expressions being known, known, reproduced, published. And then circulated beyond your control. Um, so that that kind of prehistory of our mo- in our moment of presuming that there isn't any privacy anymore, um, I think helps understand why we have that idea of privacy as though eroded um, is in part because we think of privacy as something that is experienced individually um, rather than. What I think um, other articulations of privacy might be that are about maintaining a certain kind of protection, not for not only for an individual, but instead thinking about groups, vulnerable folks, um, dispossessed folks. That's a different way of thinking about what privacy is for, um, and the unintended ends with in the coda. With thinking through one case around um, around that potential other sense of privacy.
0: Are you making any other appearances to discuss your book?
2: I am. I'm doing a seminar, oh well first, when is it? Um, there is a seminar that uh, Kimberly Juanita Brown, who is a professor at Dartmouth, um, and she's the director of their new, uh, Center for Black Studies. I actually don't, don't remember the name of the Center for Black Culture, Visual Culture. I, I can't remember the name, um, but she's the director and she has a seminar that she's been running for a while now called The Dark Room. So I'm talking about my book there. I'm talking about my book at, um, McNally Jackson Books in New York in January. I can't remember the date, January 10th maybe. Um, I'm doing a book event, I think March 26th with um Emily Boone, Nick Mirzoff, um, and Brooke Belial. All four of our, we'll be talking about all four of our new books at the new school. Um, no, at CUNY, my bad, CUNY Grad Center, um, March 26th. And those are the ones that I can think of right now.
0: And what are you working on next?
2: So I'm finishing two articles now, one that's about reputation and credit in um, the late 19th century and specifically about reading literary character in realist fiction in that late 19th century moment. And then another one that's about um, another early 20th century case about copyright Bleistein v. Donaldson, um, that's reading back a histor an art historical tradition um, that's pretty famous about Columbus paintings, Columbus discovery paintings, um, into that legal thinking. So again, doing another kind of visual archaeology of legal thinking. The next sort of short book that I'm working on is about photography. Um, and contemporary photography in particular. Uh, So in that book, I am trying to elaborate a theory of photographic temporality. Uh, So that's mostly what I'm working on this spring.
0: Any final thoughts for the New Books Network?
2: Uh, I think just thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for talking to me. And thank you for
0: reading my book. No, thank you, Monica. You listened to an original podcast recording of the New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore. Our audience can thank Monica Huerta for contributing a new episode about her book out of New York University Press, The Unintended. Until next time, we say farewell. And don't forget to subscribe to get more podcasts like this one to your inbox.